The Stack is back. This week, we speak with Jennifer Dodgson, CEO of LexiCat, a company that seeks to make data mining easier by presenting low-code or no-code solutions for natural language processing. Jennifer is also an expert in the politics of ancient China and has gained renown for her daily translations of the stratagems of the warring states. Let's listen. You've got quite a resume, and I thought, can we? Oh, well, I guess quite I, a bad resume. <laughs> quite a bad resume. You, I, I think it's, I think it's the case. I don't know what you want to say and what you don't want to say, but I think it's the case that you are a dual UK French citizen. Is that right? Uh, yeah, that's that's right. Did you grow up in France or the UK uh, or both? Well, I, yeah, a bit of both. Uh, so my family moved to France when I was 14 uh, and I got stuck into a Catholic school there and failed everything and got sent back home. So yeah, then I sort of started about failed my A-levels, uh, got into a French university despite that and yeah, ended up in France. And then from France, you somehow ended up in Singapore? Yeah, uh, so that... Um, so originally when I was in France, I went to Sciences Po, which is where you go to train to be a bureaucrat. Um, oh, I, I went to the Sciences Po as well. Oh, wow, Strasbourg. really? Well, oh, okay. in Strasbourg, yeah. Oh, you did the French-German one? Yep, yep, that's right. Oh, that's hardcore. I could never do the German <laughs> dual language thing. <laughs> I did not, no, 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 I didn't do, uh, sorry, I was I was there for like a year. I was uh, American University, but I joined their program as an exchange student for a year. Okay. Oh, wow. Nice. Yeah. Sorry, um, anyway. anyway. Yeah, yeah. So so I did that, and then I went into the Ministry of Defense when I graduated, uh, and then I got kicked out for having too many Chinese friends. Um, uh, as, as you do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that was a bit awkward, and uh, I, apparently I'm on some sort of watch list now because I had another offer from NATO, and that was uh, that was withdrawn at the last possible minute. Um, and so I ended up working for this shady law firm in Laos, a guy who got disbarred in Paris and, and just carried on. Uh, and I was working in Laos and just sort of wondering what to do next. And I came to visit one of my friends in Singapore who's working at the Marina Bay Sands, and it just seemed really nice. So I thought, oh well, I'll go and live in Singapore and see what happens. I mean, is it common? Sorry. Is it, is it, is it common when disbarred in France to just kind of seek some outpost of the former empire to hang a shingle? (laughs) That sounds like a pretty crazy story itself. Yeah. Well, it's, I don't, I've never heard of anyone else who's done it, but it, it could well be, I suspect it's, uh, Oh, what did, what did the British say? Um, uh, failed in London, try Hong Kong. Um, right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it could be the French equivalent of that. So yeah. Um, and uh, Laos as well is kind of the bottom of the expat barrel. It's it's where you go when you know when you failed in Hong Kong and everywhere else. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, after after Laos, you in, you were saying you ended up in Singapore, and yeah. what did you do? You did a PhD there, or yeah, postgraduate. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And um, again, in political science, I think, is that right? Uh, yeah, well, they call it public policy, but um, that, that just means political science with some management buzzwords thrown in, essentially. Um, but yeah, no, I, I sort of came on a visit and all of the shops had walk-in interview signs in the window. And I thought, 
well, it's got to be easier to get a job here than anywhere else, even if I have to do a PhD while I'm at it. So I thought, yeah, if, I, I didn't particularly care about getting a PhD, but uh, yeah, the employment market looked very tempting. So I thought, oh, I'll give it a go. What, when was this? What year was this? Uh, that would have been 2013, 2014. How was your Chinese at the time? Did you speak Chinese already? Uh, I mean, from, yeah. from your time in the Seance Po, maybe? Yeah, yeah, sort of. Okay. I mean, maybe actually better than now because I haven't I haven't spoken in ages during the lockdown. So uh, I've probably forgotten half of it. But yeah. I mean, did you study Chinese in, in university back in France? Is that why you had so many Chinese friends? Yeah. I mean, I did a bit, but uh, it was mainly from working there. So I did uh, I did a couple of months teaching English and that was my first time in China in, in Shijiazhuang. And then uh, worked in a law firm in Qingdao for a while as well. So that was where I learned most of it. I've, I've seen you doing the video of, of, uh, of uh, Chinese calligraphy, though. You got really into Chinese calligraphy? Oh, yeah. Oh, they, yeah, the school made me do that in exchange for a business contract. <laughs> <laughs> That's like a barter. Uh, yeah. Um, so it's not that you're like a calligraphy expert. They just needed a, a white face to to paint on paper or what? Yeah, show how sort of multicultural and everything they are. Uh, I mean, I I sort of hesitate about it because I, no, I mean, to be fair, my, my writing is less crap than most people's these days, but um, that isn't saying a great deal. I'm not, you know, pro-level or anything. And, um Anyone who knows anything about Chinese calligraphy can see, which makes it a bit embarrassing for me. But uh, yeah, they sort of exhorted a couple of um, uh, a couple of uh, videos out of me in exchange for a, a contract to do some survey work for them. My handwriting is basically like a four-year-old, so and and I get I get told that I mean my vocabulary is very good, but I just never learned handwriting. My English is not that much better. The um, but because well, you also um know classical Chinese or have done uh, quite a bit there. So how, how did you pick up that? Uh, well, that was totally by accident as well. I wasn't uh, sort of a very weeby Chinese culture nerd to start with. But um, when I was doing my thesis, it was to do with political legitimacy in, in China and Chinese-influenced countries. And the school, I think, would have much preferred if I'd stuck to purely modern theory and so on, which I could have done. I could have talked about path dependency and behavioral economics or whatever. Um, but that's not the Sciences Po way. The Sciences Po way is to go back as early as possible in the philosophy and see who the first person to notice whatever phenomenon you're looking at was. And I sort of, I got back to about 500 BC and I was still going. So I thought, oh, well, um, these theories are clearly still functioning. They're clearly still affecting the way that people perceive governments in China and in Japan and so on. Uh, and if I'm going to pretend to be an expert and talk about these things, I'd better learn the language. So that, that was how I ended up uh, learning classical Chinese. And your, um, your focus is on the warring states period, right? So for people who are less familiar, may, maybe talk about that. I mean, it's it's before the unification of China. So so more kind of like a pre-Westphalian, uh, if you think about like the Western analogy. So when China was broken up into many different countries, but um, and obviously very early, and that's how far it um, went back to you. So could you just talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So the 
Uh, what I would, it, it always gets compared to the axial age in Greece and so on. And I always felt like that was a bad comparison, really, because the, the warring states era was a lot more like um, the Renaissance and the, the Enlightenment in Europe. It was when people were putting together the social and political concepts that would structure Chinese politics for years to come. So when, with the Greek philosophers, they were talking about sort of metaphysics or the nature of matter or something, which... Yeah, it's pretty interesting, but it doesn't have a whole lot of political effect. Even the the democratic processes that they had weren't really theorized to a huge degree. Whereas during the the Renaissance and the the Enlightenment, people were thinking in systemic terms about politics for the really for the first time in Europe. So algorithmic politics, essentially, uh, you know, if A then B, if C then D, and so on. And that is what was happening uh, during the Warring States era in China. So that is why I was so interested in it. Because these algorithms that they described and also designed to run their politics, a lot of them are still functioning today. And, you know, during my thesis, I was describing them saying, yeah, they're still relevant. We can find statistical evidence of this. And then starting making agent-based models on a PC to prove that these models are still functional and still predictive and so on. So yeah, that's uh, that was that's the Warring States era from my perspective. I mean, obviously, it was also a really fun swashbuckling time with everyone murdering each other and everything. So that that cheers. Yeah, I was going to ask. Everyone. Yeah, is there are there any um, kind of characters or personae from that era that you particularly identify with? Oh no, they were all way cooler than me. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, and. I mean, I'm, I'm a legalism guy, which um, the legalists were basically very into this whole idea of algorithmic government. So they, they believed in the idea that the way to control society is by incentives, essentially. So rather than teaching people to be good like the Confucians or, or saying, you know, you should just follow nature like the, the Zhuangzi type task, they thought that if you want to build a, a strong and a peaceful country, you've got to use rewards and punishments to get people to do what you want. Um, and being you know, like an algorithms guy, that was my field. So obviously, what I am looking at is the, the you know, the people who wrote these things. So uh, Han yeah, like, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. So, but uh, again, it's sort of I'm not. I mean, there, there has been sort of I think emerging online lately uh, a sort of doctrinaire, communist, legalist, uh, almost like tankies. Maybe they're a sub-branch of tankies, I'm not sure. Well, that's that's what I was going to ask because it, <laughs> I think that whether it's called the Chinese Communist Party or not, really, like you've said, I mean, this is the well that they draw on, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, Xi Jinping is a, he's, he's sort of an old school legalist, Um making occasional gestures towards Marxism, essentially. But yeah, it, it is sort of, there, there is a revival going on, um, and it gets a bit larpy at times, so I wouldn't really class myself as being one of those. Um, no. But, <laughs> yeah, it, it's all a bit intense. Um, and yeah, but yeah, no, it's, it's, I would say, if anything, the original works are so good that they, they deserve better than... Uh, the endorsements of uh, weebs and laughers on Twitter. 
so I'm going to lose 10 million followers as a result of saying that. But, yeah. Well, I, I think though. I, yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead, Josh. No, I was. I was just gonna. I was gonna say that's that's our goal with all of our guests to have them say something. Lose you know. their platform. Exactly right. The um. But I. I think. I mean, it's it is useful though because I think that um at least from the Western general standpoint. I mean, I would say even at the policymaker level there is limited understanding of of any of these. I mean, I think that we would be troubled if we went to, you know, now uh, President Biden's National Security Council and talked to the so-called China experts there and asked their opinion on legalism. I think we'd be troubled at the level of knowledge that they even had um, about it. And it's just like, you know, so, so little informed understanding of it. And so it, it creates all sorts of issues then in responding to things like what's going on in Xinjiang, for instance. Um, sorry, the tones were wrong there, Xinjiang. But the, um, you know, it, so I think that it's obviously pretty valuable work. I don't, I don't know if you'll get to, um, you know, have those guys in your orbit or anything like that. But it is important stuff to to know for people outside of China. Yeah, I mean, realistically, I could fly to Washington tomorrow and kiss the ass of everyone who's ever read the the book of Lord Shang, and I would not get chapped lips. But um, <laughs> yeah, it's and um, but then I could I could probably say the same thing about Beijing. Uh, I mean, I know history grads who who've come up through through Beida and so on, and um, yeah, no, they they've never read any of these original texts. But then. The original texts are so hardwired into their society that they don't actually need to. It's it's instinctive at that point. Whereas if you're a foreigner, yeah, it might be a, a good idea to read some of them. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I don't know how many U.S. policymakers have read Thucydides either, right? <laughs> um, so it's and and yet, like you said, I mean, it's just kind of um, you know the Melian dialogue or whatever. Um, these parts of the canon, yeah, they're just part of how they make decisions. So. But it, now, like, uh, so coming from that algorithm uh, sort of thinking, because you do some work in uh, uh, artificial intelligence, right? Yeah, yeah. Or at least I, I delegate it to people who are smarter than me. But <laughs> yeah. Well, that's that's the way to do anything, I think. Taking this taking this very seriously, the the sort of algorithmic algorithmic policy making. Does this go into the the actual work that you're doing trying to trying to render policy into algorithm or into code uh, i guess i mean at, at the moment it's more of a, a hobby to be honest it doesn't uh at the, uh, our company it focuses on natural language processing um right. uh, and these kind of things uh and i think having a particular way of thinking about algorithm design it does help so it's always there in the background but uh it's not a visible in our current projects whereas the question a couple of oh sorry no no sorry i was saying the, the question is are is is your end goal to create an ai lee kuan yu is that <laughs> who who will be our our ai overlord no okay well, yeah but um, yeah that's I, what I we all want cut it in those terms but yeah <laughs> uh, uh yeah yeah no i mean it's i think that there are different ways to to design systems and we come at them we tend to come at them from a very sort of cartesian perspective uh 
it's changed a bit lately now that we we do know about neural networks and, and the, there are so many so many more people doing what i would call this sort of threshold based computing rather than the, the more algebraic computing um so yeah i think it is coming i think we are gradually moving around to a more classical chinese understanding of how algorithms can work but uh, it hasn't traditionally been the case so back to the natural language processing what is the your your company is called lexicat right yeah and what is the my i i think my my understanding a, a few weeks ago when i looked into it was that uh and i'll you you correct me but my understanding was that you're using natural language processing to mine sentiment for government agencies that might want to use that sort of information yeah i mean that is part of the work definitely uh and we only do it for totally inoffensive agencies like tourism promotion so it's it's nothing sinister although if anyone's sinister wants to get in touch you know hit me up <laughs> uh, um but yeah it's the idea behind the technology is to provide no code natural language processing systems that anyone can use so rather than having to uh, you know, learn TensorFlow or whatever to, to create your sentiment model for your website. You can just pour all your data into Lexicat and get out something that is A, customized to your data, and B, can be customized even further via a drag and drop uh, interface. So the, um, the sort of ideal type project that we've been using to demonstrate that is uh, one that we make for a client predicting next day crypto prices from sentiment and headlines. Oh, right. This um, is like the Wall Street, the Wall Street bets, uh, Reddit sort of sentiment, I think something like yeah, this. Yeah. Yeah. So we, we do have a Reddit sentiment bot that I sort of, we made that in an afternoon and just set it running to get a bit of publicity. But uh, we've actually got a couple of guys working to back test it now and see if we can make an actual trading strategy off it. Uh, I mean, the this problem is the with pink, that is it's not the yeah. pink Wojak, the pink Wojak index. No, no, it's a different one. Uh, okay. <laughs> but yeah, it's. I, I think the big problem with that is when everyone noticed it, you've got a sort of Heisenberg thing going on where the fact that it's being observed has changed the quality of the data. So uh, mm. post GameStop will not look like pre GameStop. So I'm not. I'm not really sure what we're going to get out of it, but hopefully it'll be something. Yeah, I, I do know that there are there are companies that that um, give you, say, for instance, um, trading trading tips based on sentiment from like Twitter. Yeah. So, for instance, yeah, like whatever whatever the the Twitter Twitter sentiment is, and I I don't really know how that works, but anyway, back to your your other uh, potential applications you were talking about. Yeah, I mean, it's so the. Uh, the sort of the key utility behind it is just this idea that if you're looking at sentiment in a particular field, then a very simple-minded model that you can customize is better than a really sophisticated general model. So our our crypto price sentiment do that. That is outperforming Google by 45, 50% for predicting next day prices. And it's not because our... Our AI is better than Google. I mean, it barely even qualifies as AI, but what it is, is it's modifiable by the user. So we deliberately tweak the model because we know, for example, in a crypto context, if you've got 
if you've got a CEO saying, um, I'll make every possible effort to comply with the appropriate regulations, Google sentiment is going to decide that that is a broadly positive statement. Whereas if you know anything about crypto, you know it means that this guy is getting sued. So obviously right. it's negative. So you want to reassign that as being negative without having to, you know, pay some guy in Hyderabad to to tag 10,000 items of data. So yeah, that is the idea behind it. What uh, what are you? So are you using uh, social media mostly as uh, the inputs for these financial ones? Yeah, uh, although the the crypto one that is actually um, the data is headlines from Crypto Panic and places like that. Mm. Uh, the Reddit one, obviously, it's Reddit. We've got a Twitter um, doodad that is sitting in beta at the moment. But for clients, we also do a lot of survey data analysis. So uh, they either they so they their have own their data. own bespoke data. Okay. Yeah, or or we collect it for them, which um, really stresses me out because the prices of panel data have gone up hugely over COVID. And uh, oh right, yeah, yeah, you you sort of commit to getting a certain number of responses for a certain price. And uh, it's, it's, it's got a lot harder to do than it used to be. I was, I was going to ask, uh, you, you said that you um, train it against, against the, the Google AI. Does Google have an AI that, that is, is like tracking sentiment and giving cryptocurrency uh, uh, so prices? It, it has a general sentiment API. Ah. Uh that you can integrate um, with Google Sheets. So you, ha you have to write your own scripts, obviously, to, to get them to interact, but the API key is free and everything. And uh, yeah, you can just run, basically you, you feed your data into Google Sheets uh, and then run your script and it'll output a score in the next, um, in the next column of the spreadsheet for the sentiment for each, um, each item. Yeah, have you try? Have you been able to get? Um, can you get the APIs for like Weibo and WeChat and apply these in in China too? Yeah, uh, not so much for WeChat because um, <laughs> I was in talking to one guy. Yeah. yeah, uh, WeChat is they act like the most virtuous data protectors on earth. Um, whether they actually are or not, uh, I couldn't possibly comment. But, um, yeah, they're really strict about their data, far worse than Facebook and so on. They, even to get a corporate WeChat account, you've got to pay large amounts of money. Uh, Weibo is, is a lot more open. The, their API, it's sort of, it's, it's, super, it's a bit clunky to use if you're outside China. But, yeah, it's, uh, it's usable and you can, you can get nice data off it. They ask for you. They ask for your next of kin when you apply for an API key, which is a bit worrying. Yeah. But um, apart from that, the experience has been great. Um, you 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 mentioned COVID. I mean, what what has it been like running a business in this environment? Oh, it's been diabolical, uh, <laughs> and it could be worse. Yeah, we could be a restaurant or a hotel or something. We haven't been hit that hard, but we have been hit by. Uh, the fact that people aren't spending on market research anymore, that was one of the first budgets to get cut. Uh, and the fact that media advertising took a huge hit. So yeah, the, those were two of our main sort of streams of revenue and they just completely died right at the beginning of the pandemic. And also 
every company in Singapore except us essentially got huge stimulus checks because we're we're registered as a we don't have 30% local capital essentially and normally i'm this sort of grizzled old uncle ted libertarian cowboy type who doesn't want government money anyway but if literally everyone else in the market is getting shed loads of it it's as if we're being fined thousands of dollars every month mm-hmm. so uh, yeah that uh, that would have been a tough decision if it had been an actual decision but since none of it is coming our way anyway um i was freed from having to make any tough choices <laughs> do you do you have are, are you uh, predominantly employing people in Singapore, or are you one of these new uh, new companies now that it has everyone spread out all over the world, like us for that matter? Yeah. Uh, so we we actually have an office in Indonesia, uh, a front end office. Um, it's a bit quiet now because we just had a couple of guys end our contract, so I think we've got one guy manning the decks but um yeah it's the front end is all done in indonesia and that is not so much for price reasons of the fact that it's just almost impossible to get front end developers in singapore whatever you're paying yeah Uh, the few that there are are back-end guys who've repurposed themselves and are demanding sort of ten thousand a month so uh yeah it it wasn't on the table for us but otherwise yeah everyone is in singapore the um uh, so anyway, for sales then like uh, where where are you try where have you been trying to get people to subscribe to the service? So I mean honestly during COVID we hardly did any sales just because it was dead everything was just totally dead. Uh, so what we concentrated on during COVID was um, these sort of consulting projects where we make custom algorithms for a customer or we do data analytics for a particular customer or data mining or these kind of things. So we, we were doing a lot of these custom projects, which is not our real vocation in life, but it did mean that we came out of COVID with a lot of code that could be you know, repurposed and used for the site and we could do various things with. Most of them were in Singapore. We've got a few guys abroad. So I've been working with a guy in Israel and uh, some guys from the EU, for example. Um, but yeah, no, most of them most of them are Singapore-based at the moment. I would really like to get into China more as things open up because the whole sort of low-code, no-code API-based computing thing does exist there, but um, it's less of a... It's less hyped than in the U.S. I mean, obviously, people are using the methods, but they're not really talking about it so much. And I feel like once it is definitely going to take off far more than it currently is, uh, just as a matter of reducing reducing companies' human resources costs. Mm-hmm. So if we could if we could be in the, sort of the the big first wave of no code platforms for business analytics and stuff, that would be uh, that would be really nice. Yeah, I mean, it, it's interesting. I mean, it, I I find it hard to tell, um, you know, because big data, deep learning, all of these things get thrown around, and or like machine learning, and it's it's hard for me to tell exactly how much companies are actually doing and how much they're just kind of trying to tell investors that they're doing something that sounds fancy. Um, so, yeah, I mean, how, how much have things changed over the last five or 10 years and how, how much 
how superficial is it or how much more really can be done um, in these areas? I would say it's really superficial. <laughs> um, yeah, so much is just hot air. I would say 95% of ed tech startups are bragging about their AI. And what they right. actually mean is they've got a website. You know, they, they do kids' homework. They, they pay Indian PhDs to do, to do kids' homework, and they've got a website. Or they write college applications for, for rich um, Chinese poor guy, and they've got a website. Because they've got a website, that makes them an ed tech company. Yeah, there's, there's just so much of this. Uh, blockchain, no one actually runs a blockchain because it's complicated and expensive. But they all will say, oh, and we're developing a blockchain concept to go with our whatever it is that they've got already. Yeah, there's, it's just so much hot air. Um, yeah, I see a lot can, of this. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Sorry, yeah. no. I was going to say I see I see quite a lot of this as well in in the education industry in in China, which is quite a lot of uh, big talk about um, how how high quality the education is. But what uh, and you know, send, especially when when sending students to uh, Western countries, these um, companies that cater to that, they are. Uh, you know, it's, it's, they, they hire all the teachers uh, and have three years of high school, but the, the product at the end is that you get, you get the, the IELTS score that you need and you get the um, college loan app. I mean, college application that you need and you get the, um, the essay that you need and uh all, all of that stuff is part of the is, is part of the education package and yeah. so it doesn't really matter the quality of the education that you actually got uh, I've seen so for instance this year you know I've seen every year I say this but but um, this year I have seen students graduating let's uh, let's say from other companies uh, than the one that I work at that don't speak English at all no English at all and they're getting into, uh, well, like for instance, NYU, um, you know, computer science or something like that. No, couldn't couldn't string together five t intelligible words of English. But um, this is the product that's being sent overseas right now. But it almost yeah. doesn't matter because they they graduate into like. Yeah. So then they go to these like de facto Chinese colonies at these universities. Yes. Yes. Ne never have to interact with like anyone, including their professor. Like if they're in, in CS, maybe even their professors. But um, yeah, I don't. Yeah, that's that's like a crazy dynamic. But you know, it's interesting. I mean, in in AI, um, China for policy reasons uh, has been trying to carve out. Uh, you know, invest a lot in this space, um, and and usually tied to certain applications uh, in kind of defense and autonomous driving or whatever. So, like even Google, it has hired hundreds of engineers. The whole like Google has left China stuff is bullshit, um, and they have hundreds of AI engineers in Beijing now. But yeah, I don't know if it really kind of. Um, I imagine a lot of it is for like nefarious kind of state oriented purposes rather than um, marketing stuff. But what, it, what is the uh, 
like a fundraising environment? Like, um, have you raised venture capital or at what stage are you um, in that? And if you are raising external capital, like how has that fundraising environment been like? Oh, yeah. So we we raised a sort of angel round of 170,000 Sing dollars. And that was 100,000 came from the National University of Singapore. Um, so they've been investing in startups lately. And that that's how we ended up uh getting their cash because they, they actually own our IP anyway. So if they're going to own our IP, they might as well uh, give us some money to develop it. Because it was generated when you were a student there. Yeah. So that's, I see. Okay. that's yeah. essentially that. I mean, e- even if we'd taken investment money from someone else, they would still have owned the IP. So we're pretty much tied to them at this point. Um, and yeah, the, the goal was to actually try and raise Series A in spring of last year. And that just wasn't happening because of COVID. Uh, so our, our whole burn rate was sort of predicated on the idea that we'd be able to raise Series A beginning of next year. So then it was kind of panic stations to scrape together enough revenue to survive, which we've managed to do so far. So that's good. I mean, I, I would still like to raise funds, but at the moment, it's just dead in Singapore as far as as far as VC is concerned. Singapore investors, even the supposedly adventurous ones, are extremely conservative. You know, a lot of the time they they will talk about, oh, we want the next, we want disruptive technology and innovation and the next unicorn and so on. And actually what they want is whatever was popular in America six months ago. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, it, it, over the past sort of year during during the COVID lockdown, I, I I have actually come out and straight up asked a few if they are still investing, and they've just said either no or they're only investing in portfolio companies to keep them afloat. Uh, and it's it's a bit frustrating because a lot of them did get huge injections of cash from the government, and they just sort of sat on it. Uh, I remember halfway through the lockdown, there were a lot of articles in the financial press about um, you know how much cash the the uh, the funds have got on their bucks and it's it's going to be great it's going to be a bonanza and yeah the the reason they've got so much cash is because they're not spending any of it so uh yeah uh that and i th- i would say that we're still pretty much in that situation in singapore now but on the other hand indonesia and china they're still going great guns so i've been talking to a few uh, vc firms from indonesia and china and fingers crossed that'll that will turn into something lucrative. Indonesia has been like my one of my least favorite countries to visit. And maybe like that's purely a comment on Jakarta, but you like it? Um, well, I haven't actually spent all that much time there. We, we went there a couple of times to set up the office. Um, and our office is in Yogyakarta, which is... Oh, yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. That's a very different sort of place. Yeah. It's, it's sort of far nicer. I mean, it's the volcano is erupting at the moment, so hopefully it will stay nice uh, and not be engulfed in lava. But yeah, yeah, the food's good. It's 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 quiet, it's relaxed, nice scenery. Uh, I've never been to Jakarta actually, so I don't know. I I know everyone I've met who's been there says it's absolutely awful. But um, yeah, I think it's fine if you like sitting in traffic with diesel smoke in your face, like. Uh, also like the cheapest taxis in the world, I think. But um, Jakarta is interesting. I mean, that's where, have you been to like the uh, 
Pramanan and Borobudur temples? Yeah, I really regretted that. I, <laughs> I ended up getting there about half an hour before closing time and they charged huge, ludicrous foreigner fees. Also, it was pouring with rain, so I could barely see anything even when I got to the top. So, yeah. Um, so the, I, I went there in 2004 um, and it was there with a, a friend who had been doing a Fulbright in Singapore, actually. But the um, and we got to, and now I can't remember which one of the two it was, let's say Pramanand, which is the Hindu complex. Um, and like then just found ourselves like next to this Dutch guy, middle aged. And he's like, you know. The last time I was here, I was carried on a litter by my family's <laughs> servants because he had been there uh, before the um, revolution and stuff. So that was a pretty interesting conversation. Yeah, no, I mean, honestly, for the prices they charge to get in, they should still offer that. Um... <laughs> yeah, that must be a new thing. I don't remember it being, I don't recall it being outrageously expensive. So I, I think they must be soaking um, Chinese tourists or something. Yeah, it's, I, I know the, the local prices, it's it's something like, it's something tiny, like a dollar or something. And then for foreigners, I think it's about, I think it's nearly $50. I don't know. That uh, is not you, worth it. You, yeah. Yeah. I, I had the same experience in Xi'an when I went to the, um, the terracotta warriors, you know, you, you think that every place in China is going to be dirt cheap comparatively. And uh, I went there. I think it costs more to go there than, it go, than to go to the Louvre. And I don't know. I, I assume you've both been there. I don't know. but um, I've never been there, embarrassingly, no? in my ago. specialization. Yeah. So. yeah I, I, uh, but there, let me, let me just, I mean, it's, it's wonderful, but there is not enough stuff to, to see to uh, make it worth more than a trip to the Louvre or something like that, which you could spend, you know, two or three months in, for instance. But uh, it, you need it, you it, need to go to more of the like one or two A sites, not these like five, six A. Let me tell you, sites. sir, I live I live like 45 minutes from San Xingdui. So I am, you know, it's, know. it's nothing but the best, my friend. <laughs> I went. I went to um, in in Chongqing. There's the um, the old uh, KMT prison where they kept the um, like communist spies that they caught, basically. And it's now basically it's just like a walking park for retired teachers who who. And I th I think there probably is like a extortionary foreigner price of like five dollars instead of two cents. Um, <laughs> But that that's that's a pretty crazy one. The Terracotta Warriors is the guy who discovered them still alive because he used they used to like have him. He's just like some peasant, right? Who was digging a well, um, and they would have him in the book bookshop, like signing autographs. But he, I, I mean, this would have been like twenty years ago, so I think he he might be gone now. I uh, know. I went to the bookshop. I didn't see him there. So yeah, he might have been out for a drink or something. Yeah, it was. Uh, <laughs> Lao Wong, I think. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but actually, actually, now that I've said that, um, Jen, you have you have tweeted recently about the the stuff that's happening um, in Chengdu, which is actually there's two sites. It's not uh, well. There's two major sites. There's there's the one in north northeast Chengdu, which is which is where the um, 
civilization was originally. Yeah. Um, and then I, I don't know what, what happened uh, to them. I, I think that the story is that some, you know, like maybe there was a flood or, or a, a, I don't know, a dam broke or something like that. And the, uh, the, the people living north, northeast of what is now Chengdu ended up having to resettle in, um, in what is now much closer to down. Well, it's, it's much closer to, to downtown Chengdu. Um, oh, more convenient for going to the office. Uh, yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> but, but, uh, obviously thousands of years ago. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so, um, what was it that, what, what was it that happened recently? They found some more masks or something like that. Yeah, I think they they found two additional grave pits, uh, and I can't remember where they are compared to the original uh, the original ones that they found. I think they're not far away. Um, and yeah, it's it's sort of uh, just a lot more of the same stuff. Uh, I don't I mean, know I, if anyone. Oh, sorry. Yes, go no, go ahead, go ahead. No, I, I, was, I was saying I would I would hope that uh, you know that they'll be able to put together more of a historical story out of them so far. But so far, all I've seen from it has been sort of pretty photos with gold masks and stuff. If they can come up with a, a narrative from it, yeah, that would be that would be interesting. But I haven't seen anything yet. I don't know. Uh, if you go there, you have the um, you have the masks that you're talking about, which are really out of this world. I think that. There's something to be said about how, you know, the argument will be how uh, how much is Chinese civilization a continuation of these of the mythical the mythical kingdoms, I suppose. And but if you go look at some of these artifacts, they look totally out of this world. Nothing like nothing like. Well, I shouldn't say nothing like what comes after, but but genuinely very, very different from anything you, you can see anywhere else. For instance, they have these – the masks or the, the giant uh, – I think they're bronze heads that they pull out of the ground. They have these bulging eyes that look uh, almost like beams of light coming out of their eyes, but they're rendered in, in bronze. So you just see these long beams or, or bulging long eyes uh, coming out. And um, these very alien sort of uh, like almond, all, almond shape, but like like uh, or more like a raindrop shape, eyes twisting mm-hmm. up and up up and away from the face, and um, these sort of uh, like clownishly, cartoonishly, cartoonishly large noses and things like that. And it doesn't. Well, look- I think you you've hit mm-hmm. it right on the head. I mean, there was clearly some sort of a global civilization that right. we're only now get and it probably was seeded by ancient aliens um yes right yeah the, um, but I, I mean what i'm interested in and and jenny you probably have more thought but you know <clears throat> the the chinese government you know kind of the le- legitimacy and historical claims to all sorts of places get affected by discoveries like this. I mean, there was a controversial one of um, a proto-Korean site that was found in, in Northeast China. And there were some academics that were basically saying, okay, well, now this proves that Koreans are actually Chinese and, and everything like that. So, um, 
you know, are there are there any implications that could come from this? Do you think? Uh, I mean, I think that the guys who are interested in these things, and uh, you know, they they do exist, but they are a minority within uh, both academic and general opinion. This this idea that ethnicity matters essentially is is kind of minority. I mean, it, and it always has been. There's sort of bits in the um, uh, in the Han histories where Bangu talks about how you know how he doesn't think uh, barbarians can possibly in, uh, integrate into Chinese society and uh, become assimilated, and also acknowledges that his is a minority opinion and most people are just you know willing to you know if these guys are willing to become sedentary and learn how to write, then they are Chinese now. Right. Um, well, it's funny. I mean, like in I've noticed in um, you know certain parts of I'll call it discourse, but that's a ridiculous term to use for like people who are tweeting. Um, but like you know, talking about oh the Han, um, you know, and it's usually a sort of I don't want to say like Sinophobic, but kind of an anti-Chinese jingoistic America. You know, talking about oh you know the Han doing this and like. Literally, I don't think that I have ever met a single Chinese person who would define themselves as Han, right? I mean, like, that's just not the category that they they think in. I think that, you know, so it's it's almost like, you know, trying to impute to them something that is much more familiar in, in the West, right? But I mean, like, yeah, it's just something that does not really exist. Yeah, it's, I mean, I, I've met plenty of sort of Fanqing and the um, the patriot, hyper-patriotic online guys. And I've never met a single Han nationalist. Uh, I mean, they're supposed to exist, but it's, uh, I don't know. I, I really am starting to wonder if they're not just a total urban legend because I've never met one. I might have seen a few forum posts. I can't even remember. I can't even remember that, to be honest. I don't know about Han nationalists, but you can. I, what you do find is is regional regional nationalism, like you yeah. know, lunatic. Uh, so yeah, I I can't think of having ever met a Han. Well, I I've been told very clearly you can't trust anybody from northern China because they eat too much noodles and wheat. <laughs> and then I've also heard you can't trust anybody from South China because of all the rice they eat, and they're very tricky. Oh yeah, yeah. Hernan. Hernan is full of thieves. You shouldn't go there. Yeah, <laughs> Tibetan and, and people. That's what Hernan, will, will Hernan people your... will tell you, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Tibetan people, you don't you don't go near them at the bus station. The the reason they're there is not for the bus; it's for your wallet. This kind of thing. <laughs> but yeah, that's I mean, what you hear. Yeah, it's it's sort of to a degree. I think Han nationalism. Most people would see that as being anti-Chinese. Because the Chinese concept is that if you're willing to join in, then you're a part of us. And if well, you're this starting was this, people. Yeah, I think, I mean, like, wasn't Sun Yat-sen, he kind of nailed this because he realized a, because there was like the anti-Qing, anti-Manchu type sentiment. So maybe there was like a proto-Han nationalism then. But, you know, you look at a map and you say, okay, um, if you sort of delineate on those that basis, then you're giving up basically two thirds of Chinese territory, right? Because you're just um, then you don't really have the same sort of a claim for a Tibet or you know um, the Western area or Manchuria or anything like that. So that's where he came up with the whole like five core nationalities, like Mongolian, Manchu, Tibetan, and Hui. So um, 
yeah, so I, I think that that has been um, pretty well adopted uh, across China now because it makes sense. Yeah, I mean, in in France, they've they've sort of tried to do the the same thing ever since the the foundation of various successive republics. They've said, you know, if all it takes to be French is a willingness to join, uh, it doesn't matter where you're from originally or or anything else, and they're they're sort of really working towards it. So it's it's not an alien concept, really, even in the West. But for some reason, analysts, as soon as they look at China, they think, oh, let's stick our own prejudices about ethno-nationalism on this. Uh, it must be it's the there's almost this this idea that oh they're foreign, so they must be have some you know really backward ethnic tensions going on just because they're they're not white and enlightened like us. Um, and you, you see the same thing with sort of gender issues uh, and LGBT stuff as well. There's this assumption that because Asians aren't white, they must have these sort of really, really sort of backward opinions about this. And whereas actually, you know, China and, and Japan, they've been traditionally far more tolerant than than the US and uh, on sort of gay marriage and well, no, not a gay marriage on um, on just you know gay sex and so on. As long as you as long as you're willing to be discreet about it, then you yeah, knock yourself out. I live in the gay capital of China, by the way. <laughs> That's true. Was, was it called that before you arrived, or is it uh, something? Well, no, I, I brought I brought my own. He tipped it over for these people. Yeah, I'm educating the heathens. <laughs> <laughs> Can we talk about what we always talk about, which is uh, we did get you onto Urbit at least for a quarter of an hour, I think. Oh yeah. Yeah, and I've I've got to sort out the Windows um, version of it because yeah, I I sort of I I in, I booted from a disk and got um, Linux going and everything, which I I didn't previously have on this PC because it's about as old as the Sensing Dway relics, so uh, any change is not good for it. Um, and then the partitions got buggered up and I couldn't use Linux anymore. So I, yeah, I've got to set up the uh, the Windows version. But well, you what, know, I, what I saw when I was on there looked great. I've got to get back. So yeah, I think you came in, chatted for for like five minutes, and then I didn't see you again. So I don't know if you how much of the experience you can even talk about. But yeah, I mean, I, to be honest, I'm used to dealing with sort of terrible UIs. I've been the perpetrator of many. So, however, I mean, the UI is actually quite good. But honestly, even if it had been terrible, I think the underlying you know, the architecture and the raison d'etre for the whole thing makes so much sense that it, it doesn't really, you know, even I if think, I said, oh, I don't like the color of this button, uh, it wouldn't right. make a huge difference. You said that you have some, let's say, libertarian leanings. I'm, I'm not going to, um, I'm not going to make you a nerd, but <laughs> yeah, it's some affinities. So uh, you understand, I guess, sort of like what the underlying project is, is, is uh, um, sort of like self-ownership of, of address space. I think this is very much part of that ethic of, of, um, I guess homesteading. So it's, it's, uh, you know, homesteading this vast address space, which is nevertheless non, non fungible. I suppose the, the address space is, 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 um, limited. It's quite large, but limited. And then you get to, um, homestead sort of that address space that you own and, um, no one can take it away from you. 
Yeah. You can um, start a business there. Not that I, I'm not trying to pitch you on that, but what I'm saying is that that's, that's sort of like one of, one of the draws there is that you get to own your own server, own your, all of your own data. And um, uh, I, I guess I'm interested to hear what do you think, does that have, uh, we, for instance, we've had, we've had um, guests on who, who seem to think that that could kind of fit into even a Chinese communist reading of things. But do you think that there is a, I don't want to say market, but a, uh, can something like that be sustained in East Asia where we all are? Yeah, I think definitely. Um, I think it's always going to be a minority thing because I think people, people in East Asia especially tend to be really accepting of walled garden type um, offers. So I think, I mean, even, even WeChat, which has a million sort of features is still technically a walled garden to a huge degree. But there's always going to be a set of people that wants the opposite and they're going to be a minority, but then there are plenty of products targeted at minorities that still do really well. You know, not everyone has to be WeChat to, to have a good, a good market and a good sort of user base. But you see, Urbit is WeChat. That's the thing. It is WeChat. <laughs> it's just, we just got to get there, you know? There's uh, more apps to be added. We gotta we gotta cludge a bunch of apps into to Urbit, and then we'll we'll be WeChat distributed. Yeah. So what what kind of apps are you working on at the moment to add in? Oh, we're not working on any apps. We're not the <laughs> <laughs> we we're we're not we're not uh, the developers. But um, the, I, the the reason that we pitch it so hard, I think, is because. Uh, we kind of got into it ourselves and the more time you spend there, I know it starts to sound a little culty when people, you know, they're like, you really have to go try this new piece of software. And you think to yourself, why the hell is a, is, is anyone getting so into a, it's not a piece of software, but you know, that's the, that's gotta be the initial thought. How can a person get so into, they must be a bunch of cult members and there probably are some cult members there to be uh, quite honest, but um yeah, it, it, we we talk about it all the time because uh, I don't know you you believe in the thing and and think it's going to be sort of like the next internet, and that all of your friends you have to get all of your friends. It's kind of like you know when you when you give up alcohol or when someone oh, yeah. gives up alcohol and then all they talk about is alcohol, uh, giving yeah. up alcohol, <laughs> or how much better how much better <laughs> life will be as soon as everybody gives up alcohol. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, as as we get more of this sort of big tech censor, uh, censorship and uh, uh, government censorship and all the rest of it, it yeah, the demand is only going to grow, I think. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know when everyone I knew was sort of talking about moving off Twitter or finding an alternative to Twitter or whatever, and most of the alternatives out there have you know, significant flaws of one variety or another. So yeah, there's, the demand is only getting bigger. Have you? I mean, you you're a little bit spicy on uh, Twitter. How do you how do you get away with your Twitter spiciness? Nobody uh, paying attention to the, the the lady out in Asia, or what is that? I don't know. Well, I I I own the company, so no one's going to fire me. Uh, when no, I don't. I don't just mean with your company account. I mean, I also with uh, you know your Warring States account, which. Um, not that you're not that you're that bad. I'm not trying to get the mob after you. I just mean that you, you don't have the uh, quite the same attitude to to 
um, social media as like an American individual or company? Yeah, I think I essentially, I mean, I'm in a situation at the moment where I I sort of literally have nothing to lose. So yeah, I suppose one day I could get, I mean, I have had tankies pile on the, um, uh, the warring states account before, but they also don't matter very much. I mean, for all I know, I could also have lost investment for saying something, you know, outrageous about Confucianism, but um, <laughs> I don't know what investment I lost on account of that. So uh, I, I can't, I can't gnash my teeth in despair at that. Uh, until someone actually tells me that I'm being cancelled, I don't think I'll, I'll notice. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've had the mob come after me before, but that's not a story I can tell on the podcast. But it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's this pretty- is the one year. I think this is the one year anniversary. No, no, no. That was uh, a little bit longer than that. Yeah, not too many specifics, but I did have, I did have about twenty thousand people come after me for, and when, <laughs> oh, when wow. twenty. When 20,000, like, so there's a, you know, like say an account, uh, account uh, wants to come after you for something you say when 20, you know, they have 20,000 followers. That's like, that's a rough day, you know, because then you've got, you've got 20,000 people who are motivated to start like digging through your online life and trying to find out whatever they can about you. It's pretty, pretty brutal. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've I've never had that sort of, uh, I've had a few tankies um, on my back. Uh, oh, and a few, I think, I think once, um, what's his face? Palmer. Uh, oh, he yeah, yeah, yeah. He sits onto me. But um, yeah, no, 20,000 is a, is a whole other level. Yeah. Don't do it, kids. Just keep your, keep your head down. That's my, and get on, get on Urbit where, you know, nobody can, nobody can, I, not, not that it would have hurt too bad if they had taken my Twitter account away from me, but, um, you know. The, the sort of like, I, I, you know, wall garden experience there where you get to build your own wall and keep all your your data inside of it and be private there with your friends is, is a better experience than saying something that like a billion internet users might see and decide that you're evil or something. It's the smoking lounge of the internet. Thank you for listening please visit us at www.thestack.link or find us on Twitter at thestack.link, all one word. And please remember to like and subscribe on SoundCloud and iTunes. I'm Josh, and with Andy, we are The Stack. <laughs>